Well, today as we continue our series on sleuth, we are following in, into a pottery place. In the same way that Sherlock found a vase had been knocked over, we're going to find ourselves in the very ancient centerpiece of where sculpturing and where pottery and the styles for, for putting pottery together was invented. It's just like you felt the tension in that last song. The tension of that last song is, hey, I want things changed in the world. The world is black. But then I start seeing that my heart is black. There's something wrong with me. There's this tension that we look at a world around us and we see things that are wrong in the world and then they also point back at things that are broken in us. What we're going to learn about today in Philadelphia in the case of the conflicted craftsman is in the same way you come across a crime scene, you can recognize that somebody used to be there. Somebody was here. Something happened. You can begin to look at the facts before you and unpack what led to this place. And imagine this vase. If we could put the pieces back together, we'd learn a lot about who made it. We might find the date of when it was made in one of the pieces. We might learn from the curvature of it. What kind of a craftsman, the creativity. Are they a high-level craftsman? Was it done by hand or by machine? By looking at the craft, you learn a lot about the craftsman. In the same way, we are going to use the type of Sherlock Holmes investigative skills to go to the heart of a letter, an ancient letter found, written to a group in Philadelphia. Philadelphia, modern-day Turkey, is a place where they really invented the techniques of pottery and pillar making that we know today. So we're going to look at a few different exhibits on how to study a Bible using a Sherlock Holmes technique called observation. We observe the text. Interpretation, what does it mean? And then application. Let me begin by reading the passage today. We're in Revelation chapter 3, 7, and 8. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true. Quote, He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. What does that mean? Well, keep going. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have little strength and have kept my word, but you have not denied my name. And he goes on to say, If you overcome, I will make you a pillar in the house of God. So three exhibits let's look at. The first one is, well, where is this place, Philadelphia? This isn't obviously American Philadelphia. This was written about 70 A.D. This is Philadelphia in what's known as modern-day Turkey. A little bit about Philadelphia. Here's a photograph I took while I was there. This is the beginning to the entrance to the School of Sculpture. Beautiful, beautiful sculptures here have since fallen, you know, may have fallen into disrepair with the sun coming through it. This is where you would come in the Greek-Roman world to learn how to make beautiful things. Here's a zoom in on that exact same piece, but straight up. Look at the curvatures. Look at the details. Look at the details up on the top of the artwork, in the artwork, on the artwork. This was a place where your works were so precise that they revealed attention to detail and why you did such incredibly detailed and wonderful work. Here's another view, a little more light on it, of that piece of sculpture. If you were going to become a sculptor in the Greek-Roman world in Philadelphia, you would study for 20 years before you started actually sculpting. Five years in the quarry pits, learning how to pick out rock, learning how to cut a piece of rock for a few more years, working as an apprentice for years. After 20 years of devoting your life to your work, 20 years of devoting yourself to your craft, to your apprenticeship. It was after 20 years you would then become an actual artist or worksman or guildsman there in Philadelphia. 
In fact, as you go around the corner, you will find there in Philadelphia, even today, are the remnants of the school of pottery. So here in Philadelphia was a place known for its works, a place known for its art, a place known for its ability to shape culture by the way in which it portrayed its message through the work of the culture. So with that in mind, God is going, Jesus is going to write them a letter to show how he has seen their works in a place known for their beautiful works. Jesus has seen their works. Let's talk a little about their works. Well, Alexander the Great, when he decided to begin conquering the world, he knew that one of the ways he could proselytize his worldview, his value system, was through his work. So what he did is he connected what he did, his works, to his name, the name of his God. So wherever he went, he set up cities with a gymnasium, uh, a city with an arena, and a city with a university. And so not only did you learn about Hellenism and, and the Greek culture, you learned about their gods. If you're in the education system, you learn the worldview of the name of their gods. If you were in the, the arena, you cheered and competed, but people competed on behalf of their gods. Your works were always connected to your gods, the name of your gods. Well, along comes the emperors. Here's Trajan. Uh, Trajan. No, sorry, this is Hadrian. Hadrian comes along and he says, not only were we going to compete in these three arenas, the top one being a theater, the second one being an arena, the third one being a university, these three arenas in culture, the arts, sports, and education, which used to point people to the Greek gods, will now be all about bowing down to the name of the emperor. So when you compete in the arena, you compete on behalf of the emperor. You're showing your allegiance to the emperor. As the emperor came into the arena, they sang a song to the emperor. It went like this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Speaking of Hadrian at the time. You, you competed for the gods. You went to university for the gods. More than that, when you came into the city... The artwork proclaimed the story of the gods. Here's an entrance to Philadelphia. As you come in, you'll see there used to be an arena on the right, or a a thing of art on the right, just like on the left. But embedded in their artwork and in their craftsmanship was stories. So you see on the left-hand side, there are a column way above and on the left. I'll zoom out a little bit so you can see a little bit better. On these columns, it told a story. Their craft revealed their craftsmen. Across the top section, it had the story of creation, how Zeus and how the the Titans had created us. So when you saw the artwork, you saw what was important to them in a culture. You saw what their God story was like. Underneath their God story or their creation myth, there were other pictures carved in of all the people they'd conquered. If you look at the small people on the lower panels, those are all different nations they had conquered over time. And so these panels got added to. So as you came into Philadelphia, you learned about how they were made, how they competed for the gods, how the gods made them important, how the emperor was their allegiance, and who they had conquered because their gods and their leaders were so important. Their works revealed who they worked for. They worked for the emperor. They worked for the Greek gods. Everything you saw that they did pointed to their story. So much so that there was a panel on the right-hand side that's currently being fixed that told a story of why their works pointed to the name of their gods. Here in the lower panel are all the different Greek gods competing. Above them are the different emperors. All the emperors that the gods had set up or held up over time. 
If you look at all the different emperors, look how they're all looking at the guy with the wreath. This was the current, you can imagine the current emperor with the wreath is who made this, right? Because what he's doing is he's saying, see, I am now been crowned as the supreme leader of the world. All of the previous emperors look to me. I am a son of the gods. And all of the gods lift me up. They hold me up, my leadership, my emperor. So don't you dare cross me. What I say goes, and you will follow and give your allegiance to me. So here in Philadelphia, a place of artwork, your works revealed your creator's story, what was important to you. Third thing. Now imagine you're a Christian. This letter is written to a group of Christians who do not give allegiance to the emperor, and they do not follow these Greek-Roman gods. But they are going to be forced to either obey and follow these gods and these leaders, or they will be imprisoned or killed. And Jesus, in this little ancient letter, says, Man, I know you've got little strength. It's tough, tough living out your faith, living out this, this worldview in this place. I know it's tough, but you have not denied my name. I'm so proud of the fact you have not denied my name. And one of the gods that was very important in Philadelphia was Athena, also known as Minerva. That's her Roman name. She was known as I am the truth. If you asked a Greek or Roman who's the truth, they would say, well, Minerva is. She was the god of truth, the god of art, and the god of war. You can see, she looks like a goddess of war. And so if you were in Philadelphia, you not only worshipped the emperor, but if any god you worshipped, it would have been Minerva. A little reminder from our Clash of the Titans series where she fits into the whole um, pantheon is that she was one of the daughters of Zeus. So you can see Zeus in the top right corner. Athena or Minerva was one of her daughters. So here's a group of Christians trying to care for the poor, live out their faith, do their work. Some were dye makers, some were clothing manufacturers, some were artists. And they were trying to create their story and embed their story in their work in a culture that was very antagonistic to who they were. And what's amazing about what Jesus does in this passage is he ends by saying, keep persevering, keep overcoming, and I will make you a pillar in the house of God. Now, isn't that fascinating? That in a place known for their pillar making, God says, you don't want to be a pillar in a culture that will one day crumble. I will make you into a pillar in the house in heaven. It was a pillar, actually, in the ancient uh, temple of Solomon. And it was called Boaz, or God will establish. And Jesus is saying, I will establish you. I will affirm you in heaven. I will reward you if you overcome during this time. Okay, so there's exhibit A. There's exhibit B and exhibit C. We could do a lot more. But we're just going to do those three. That's probably more than enough. So we make some observations about the text, where it's at, what was going on during that time, what these words might mean. Then we move out of Sherlock Holmes mode of making observations into interpretation. Interpretation is where we try and figure out what principle would apply to their town, but also apply to our town. We don't have Minerva. We don't have emperors, Hadrian's. So what would this have meant to them that it could also mean to us? Well, one of the ways I do that is I've been using this little magnifying glass to read the passage and come up with what I think is the universal principle that bridges the two. Let's go to the next slide and I'll show you. So let's read it again. I know your works, for you have little strength, but you've kept my word. You have not denied my name, that connection of work and name. Hold fast to what you have, 
that no one may take your crown. He wants to reward them at the, in the, the heavenly games. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of my city. We'll stop there. My main point that applies to them and to us today would be, if your works point people to my name, I will reward you with a crowd to pillar. So if your works point people to me, I'll reward you. That would apply to them in this situation and to us in our situation. So, let me show you how we might apply that. So, again, the series only got one more week. If you like this kind of digging into the text, we do this every week at our equipping service at 4.30 on Saturday and 8.50. If you don't like this, we're going to be done in two weeks and you never have to see it again. No. Now we're going to jump into what would be a typical sermon. This is how we get to the place where a sermon's prepared, by digging into a text like that. Here's the question. What if the quality of your craft Reveal the quality of your craftsmanship. What if the quality of our craftsmanship, what we do, how we run numbers, how we build things, how we serve people, how we care for people, what if the quality of your work that you do in your work life revealed to the people who watched it the quality of your craftsman, the person who made you, the person who created you? What would people learn about your worldview, your story, your creator, your God? What would they learn just by watching how you work? How patient would God be if they watched how patient you were? How loving would they deduce that God was by watching how loving you are? Huh. We're going to look at three revelations today from this passage. And my hope is that you will find that your work... Your everyday, Monday through Saturday work can be filled with purpose. That you can put your story on display without being an HR nightmare. There's a way to portray the quality of your worldview and your creator in a way that's not bombastic, that's not inappropriate. It's embedded in the quality of your work. First thing we're going to look at, the first revelation. My craft reveals my craftsmanship. My craft, whatever I do, whatever I build, whoever I serve, how we work, my craft, reveals my craftsmanship. That was certainly true of the Greeks and Romans. When you saw 20 years devoted to learning how to put a pillar together, and you asked them, why do you do this craft? Why do you put so much time into this craft? They would say, because we love the gods. Because of Athena. Athena deserves the best. Zeus deserves the best. The emperor deserves the best. You can learn a lot about people from their craft, can't you? I mean, some of you are here today because you don't necessarily believe in the Bible or Jesus, but you met somebody, and their craft, the way they parented, the craft, the the way they interacted in marriage, their craft, the way they interacted with people in conflict at work was so attractive. You said, tell me more about that. What's going on there? What gives you the power to be so patient or so compassionate? When your craft, that you're able to serve people, and you serve them so well, it tells people something's motivating you, something about putting other people's needs ahead of your own, being willing to take the blame and spread the credit, that tells people about something that makes you tick, your craftsman. That when we create as Christians, we believe that we serve a creative God, and when we create and when we work, we are doing the work of our creative craftsman. On the other hand, 
I can't tell you how many people have lamented to me, I never want to work with Christians. They do sloppy work. They do terrible work. In fact, it seems like the motto of Christianity is if it's good enough for God, it's mediocre. And many times, I remember somebody one day said to me, do you know what that Christian fish means next to a business? I said, no, what does that mean? I said, it means ichthus, and I was giving him all the Greek words for it. And he says, no, it means you're about to get ripped off. <laughs> it's a, such a bad experience with people whose craft revealed sloppiness and mediocrity. Their craft as a Christian was something that said, stay away from that. It didn't draw people to their craftsmen. On the other hand, many of us have worked with people who are perfectionists. And they have a quality, and they have a detail, and they have a drivenness that is fantastic. But as you watch the stress and the anxiety around their craft, you're like, I like what comes out of it, but the process is just horrible, right? Because the whole time they're crafting in perfectionism, what you hear behind the scenes is, it's never good enough. That their craftsman is this slave driver who has no grace, he has no patience, he has no compassion, he's never enough. And grace allows you to do work with excellence without being driven. It allows you to see that every day, Monday through Friday, can be just as much worship to God as what you do on Saturday night or Sunday. Your craft can reveal, in a very nuanced way, the craftsman behind it. So it says here in Philadelphia. It says, in Philadelphia, a place known for their works. He says, I know your works. There's ways in which you are living out your faith in a community that has a totally different worldview that is drawing people to my name. You have not denied my name. And your works are drawing people to want to know about a God that's different from the gods of the culture. Now, this is what's unique about the Bible. The main message of the Bible is called the gospel. It's very different from religion. And it affects the way you work. Let me show you an example. Religion says, I work. Okay, God, I'm doing my work. I'm doing my work. I'm giving. I'm helping. I'm praying. I'm doing nice things. I'm working to be accepted. And maybe you'll work enough to be accepted. It's just this drive, drive, drive. Hamster wheel, hamster wheel. Maybe I can do enough to be accepted. The gospel is, I work because I'm accepted. You see, you still work hard. There's still diligence. There's still excellence. There's still, I'm going to do my very best. But it comes from a place of peace a place of confidence, a place of security. I am fully and completely accepted by God through Jesus. So I want to work and please Him and do my very best out of a place of acceptance. I'll give you another example. Religion says, go back, religion says, I work to show how good I am. Look, I'm a good person. I'm a good worker. I'm showing other people how good I am. The gospel says, I work to show how good God is. So if somebody gives me a compliment, I can accept it, but I, it doesn't puff me up. I say, you know what, these talents, God gave them to me. The opportunities to develop the skill, God gave them to me. So you're always giving away credit because you love to share credit because the God you know shared his talents and shared his attributes with you. One more. Religion says, look at me. Look at, look at my spiritual resume, God. Look what I've done. The gospel says, look at him. We've all known people who have this ambition and humility. What Jim Collins calls a level five leader. The ability to be incredibly ambitious in your work and yet humble. The Bible uniquely offers a message that your craft can reveal your craftsman in a way that you can master your work without your work mastering you. 
Now, it's interesting because Jesus quotes right in the middle of this, this, this passage in Revelation. He quotes from a passage from the Old Testament in Isaiah. It's a very interesting passage. You can go to the next slide if you want. Jesus says, And to the angel of the Philadelphia, church in Philadelphia, write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. And he quotes this thing. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Like, what does that mean? Well, if you have a Bible, blueletterbible.org, you can put in that little verse and it will show you that's exactly in Isaiah. Here's what it says in Isaiah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. You're like, yeah, that didn't help at all. So sometimes when you read a verse, you've got to read the broader paragraph or story. So let me tell you the story so we don't have to put it all on the screen. There's a guy living in Isaiah's time. And I always pronounce his name right. I wrote it down phonetically so I wouldn't screw it up. Eliakim. Eliakim is a, a mayor of the town. He's a COO of the day. And God puts him in charge during the time of Isaiah, and his job is to run the town as a comptroller in such a way that everyone living in the city can feel peace and be blessed. Fair laws, rules, water systems, access to justice. And so this guy, Eliakim, is so able to run the, the city so well that people feel the doors of opportunity being opened. The key owns the keys to the city, so to speak. His works as a follower of God are drawing people to come to the city. People who believe in his God and don't believe in his God. They say that city is so well run. People are so cared for there. The doors are being opened for opportunity there. The doors are closed to corruption there. There's no bribery there. I am drawn to this kind of a city because of the work of this guy. And Jesus picks up this idea and says, you know the work of that comptroller back in Isaiah? How he drew people to himself because of his great work ethic? I want you to do the same in Philadelphia. I want you to work in such a way that your craft reveals your craftsmanship. You open doors for people. You close the door to a corruption. You have to take a firm stand against what's wrong and, and, and a, a strong perseverance to what's right. And also people can say what a great person you are or your company is. That when it's appropriate in relational ways, you say, you know what, this is important to me because I serve a God who believes in right and wrong. We make mistakes, I believe in forgiveness. That's why we gave forgiveness in that opportunity. But you make too many mistakes and also believe in consequences because you reap what you sow. And your faith comes out in very natural ways. And people are drawn to your work even if they don't believe in your faith. They're drawn to your craft even if they don't believe in your craftsmen. See, Alexander the Great knew this, which is why every time he went to a new city and conquered it, he set up three arenas. He wanted everyone to know his worldview about his Greek gods. Whenever he came to a city, he built it the same way. There was always going to be a university. There was always going to be a, an area that you came in that heard the story. In this case, it was the panel, right? I want you to know the story, the reason we built this, the reason it's so beautiful, the reason we put so much detail into it. We want you to know how the gods made us. We want you to know how the gods are powerful. We want you to know the story of life and where you fit into everything. It's amazing to me over the last 30 years of ministry, I started speaking in churches when I was 17. And I wanted to be good at it because I was going to go into Christian radio and television, and Christian radio and television was so horrible. I'm like, I don't want to go into Christian radio and television. It was just known for mediocrity. And I remember I used to videotape my sermons, 17, 18 years old, and I'd go back and I'd watch the videotapes and work on how I pronounce things. I'd work on 
variety. I'd work on comedy. I'd work on all the different pieces. And I remember a guy came up to me who had heard about this. He said, I heard you, you videotape yourself. I said, yeah, I'm just trying to get better. He said, that is just morally wrong. Why? If God's leading you to preach, you should preach. And whatever he tells you to say, you say. If you're reviewing it, you're questioning God. I was just trying to be less boring because I've sat through a lot of boring sermons and I like to not be the boring guy. And here is that horrible mindset that says, if you're trying to improve your skill, it's somehow not what God would want. Yet David says in the Psalms, as he wrote Psalms and he played his harp, I learned to play skillfully before the Lord. Because it's not good enough for God, it's mediocre. If, if we serve a God who makes us good enough for Him, we want our work, our skill, our everyday Monday through Friday work to have that kind of quality of service. That I hope when, when you hear sermons, you hear an aspect of history to it, some authenticity to it, you hear me struggling, you hear me wrestling with, you hear me trying to apply it, I hope you hear in the way I communicate a God who loves us and woos us and cares for us, a God who warns us but welcomes us. I want my craft to reveal my craftsman. Well, the second revelation is this. My life's perseverance, what I persevere through, reveals my life's preserver. My life's perseverance reveals my life's preserver. Remember, they're trying to persevere in a very difficult culture with the worship of emperors and the worship of other gods. And if you don't follow, you get killed. That's a tough place to persevere in. Look what he says here in this passage. Know that I have loved you. Man, just know this. You might feel like in all this trouble, all these difficulty going in your life, that I don't love you. Well, there's a principle for us. You ever feel like you're living in a, a pressure cooker? And you start wondering if God loves you or if he's mad at you? Jesus would say to you today, just know, even though you're in difficult times, know that I love you. I'm with you. But I'm commanding you to persevere through some tough stuff. I want you to grow through this. And it's going to be tough to grow through a place where Hadrian and Trajan and the Domitian are saying, if you stick with the Jesus thing, we're going to cut off your head. We're going to kill you. He says, I want you to know that the Romans think they own you. The Romans think your life belongs to them. They think that they are your life preserver. They provide your water. They provide your city. They think they are your ultimate source. But you're going to be able to, to stand true to me because you don't belong to the emperor. And you don't belong to Rome. You have a higher citizenship. You have a perseverance because you know that Domitian doesn't own your soul. Jesus does. And even if he kills your body, your real life preserver is the God who came and died for you and has already re redeemed you or forgiven you or placed you in heaven. See how powerful that is? And when you can say, I've got convictions that are so strong that no matter how pressure, how much pressure I have, I can say, well, you know, you can do what you need to do. But at the end of the day, I've got to do what I need to do. And these Christians were able to persevere during incredibly difficult times because they believed their real life, their real eternity, their real life preserver wasn't their work. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't the political system. It was the God they served. So much so that here in Philadelphia, there's a museum set up. You can see people persevering during this place where the Romans didn't help, the Romans didn't help anybody who was poor. Sorry, caste system, universe is punishing you. But right in Philadelphia, in this museum, is a pillar. That pillar has names written on both sides. And on that pillar, it has the names of different Jewish and Christian people living in this area who set up a soup kitchen. 
They saw the needy. They saw the poor. They saw the hungry. And they said, in a culture that doesn't care about the hurting, we are going to care about the hurting. And so they created the first, one of the first soup kitchens on behalf of Jewish people who served the God of the Old Testament and Christian people who served the God of the Old Testament and felt like he had come in the form of Jesus. And they partnered together, Christian and Jewish person, to persevere in life in the midst of a culture that just pushed the handicapped, who pushed the hurting away and said, no, we're going to help them. If I go to the next slide, if you look at the names on this particular place, you actually will see embedded in there our Greek, it's Greek, it's all Greek to me, uh, our Greek names of Christians, there's Christian names in there, and Jewish names in there. And many of you would say, I'm not sure I believe in Jesus and he's the son of God and all that. But you know, I've heard the stories about how you as a church have gone to Belize and every year give away $2 million for the services. I heard about you in Indian Hill when you guys were feeding, what was it, you're up to 2 million, a million and a half people, meals that you've packed for Feed My Starving Children. I heard about that and I said, you know what, I don't know what's going on there, but I love a group of people who are serving beyond themselves. I heard a story two weeks ago. One of our Belize teams went down. They went to give anesthesia to this kid who needed a cleft palate. He was so excited. No more being made fun of. Finally, he could eat without the issues related to cleft palate. Our surgical team came together. They put him under anesthesia. And immediately had to take him out because he's allergic to anesthesia. So he woke up hoping with a new face. Instead, he found out we couldn't do the surgery. Already people had given up their vacations, had gone down for a week of their time, were giving away this piece. It's just one of those cases where we didn't have the equipment for somebody who has an allergic reaction. So we could have said, you know, sorry. But instead, one of our doctors, one of my neighbors, says, I'm going to make sure that we get you your surgery. So he's come back to the States and worked with Shriners and a few other hospitals to get this kid flown here to America in the next, I think, three months where we're going to make sure he gets the surgery and gets that face fixed. And people are going to say, why do you do that? Why would you go to all that extreme, to some child in Belize you don't even know the name of? We say, because we believe in a God who went to that extreme for us. He didn't just go the extra mile. He went the extra miles. He came to earth. He dwelt among us. He served us. When we were allergic to his help, he still found other ways to woo us, to bring us to him, and to get us the need, the help we needed for our heart, for our eyes, and for our ears. And you see how suddenly... Your life's perseverance. You persevere through difficulty. People say, how did you have such hope during cancer? How did you make it during difficulty? And as you're doing that, you say, you know what? I don't want to be a Bible beater or everything. But I just got to tell you, the, the God of Jesus gives me perseverance and hope and peace. People say, well, don't say that. Is there another? You say, that's it. And then they start asking questions. And many of you are here today because you've had those very conversations. People persevering in life through good works drew you to their God. But there's more than that because here in in this area, you had to persevere in death as well. You were going to be faced with death from the emperors if you served Jesus. It's interesting that the Bible predicts beheading in the end times. And for years, people made fun of that. Oh, there's no beheading. That was a long time ago. And this last year, beheading, suddenly all the rage again. Interesting story this year, ISIS, in their tragic killing of 21 Coptic Christians, brought 21 Christians out. Coptic is just like the domination of that area, for lack of a better term. And he says, deny your God and serve our God, you know, evil Allah, uh, the ISIS version of Allah, or we're going to kill you. It said 20 of them sat down on their knees, and instead of denying their faith, they just were whispering, Jesus, 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 give me strength. I will not deny you, even in the face of this. 
ISIS actually put the 20 names of the Coptic Christians out. He, they proclaimed them. They put them out. These are the 20 people we're killing. But the video actually not has 20, but has 21 Coptic Christians. Because as the 20 were being killed and refused in the face of death to deny their God in their faith, a Muslim man watching the encounter said the words of Ezra, I'm sorry, Esther, their God is my God. And he became the 21st who was killed, whose name was not mentioned. There's something so powerful about people who are willing to die out of self-sacrifice, out of love. And the kind of people who will die looking at the face of their enemies and saying, God wants to forgive you too. A lot of people will die for stuff. But to die and then to be willing to offer the gift of mercy to your enemies in such a way that they would kneel down with you? Now that's powerful. See, our life's perseverance in life and death reveals our life preserver, which leads to our third and final revelation. It's my mastery. My mastery of my craft, my mastery of my finances, my mastery of my customer service, my mastery of business, my mastery reveals my master. And here's what's unique about the Bible. The Bible allows you to master your work without it mastering you. So you can love work, but work is not ultimately your God, so it doesn't become your God. It doesn't become the thing that masters you. You work because you have a master who gave you gifts that you want to steward and develop and use. But it doesn't own you. Your work doesn't own you. You can set healthy boundaries. And it's not always easy because of the climate. But at the end of the day, the reason you're able to balance better life's demands is because work, you love it and you do it with mastery. But it's not your master. And Jesus says, if you will allow the mastery of your works to draw people to you, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar in the temple of my God. The school of sculpturing there in Philadelphia is pretty cool. I'll show you a couple of photographs. The Christians eventually come in, and people are so attracted by the faith of the Christians that the Greek God religion sort of falls away. And the Christians take over this very area. They took over this area of art. And instead of taking the arts and taking their work and beginning to use it to display their story, a story of compassion and sacrifice and love, they shut it down and they say, God doesn't care about the arts. God doesn't care about media. God doesn't care about work. And they shut it all down. And for centuries, there'll be a dark age in regards to the, the, the work of, of artistry and media as it relates to the story of, of the God of the Bible. And right here is where it died. Right here is where Christians decided not to allow their story to be displayed through art, but to say, no, no, that's something God doesn't care about. As if God wasn't creative, as if God didn't work in the Bible. In fact, a couple years earlier, our leader had brought one of the directors or um, producers, I can't remember which, of the X-Men franchise to this very spot. He turned to our leader and he said, you don't know how hard it is in Hollywood to try and take and make great movies that actually have embedded into the storylines the idea of a savior, the idea that we need somebody to rescue us, to embed these different storylines of self-sacrifice and caring for other people. You don't know how hard it is to work the, the balance, the waddle of the balance of figuring out how to, to live in a culture that has one view and trying to put your storyline into that view. I feel like every day I'm demonized because I'm trying to figure out how to live in Philadelphia. 
If you're a follower of Christ, it's hard to live in Philadelphia. If you're not a follower of Christ, begin looking for people who have this real savviness to the way they live out their faith in really real and attractive ways. And ask yourself, what if my craft, the quality of my craft, revealed my craftsman? I'll ask you three questions as we go out today. Three questions related to those three revelations. One, how's your craft these days? If people see how you work and interact, what would they learn about your craftsman? When they watch your patience, your love, your compassion, your caring for people who can't care for you, what does your craft reveal about your sense of justice and fighting for even those who, who can't maybe pay everything they need to pay for you? How about your perseverance? Are you persevering through difficult times and are you doing it with a spirit of joy or a spirit of complaint? Is it drawing people to a hope and a peace and joy within you? And what about your mastery? Do you do sloppy work, halfway work? Or does your mastery communicate, wow, that must be important for them to put that much time and that much effort into that particular... I can't believe they put all that into something no one would even notice. God cares about the details. I don't know how many of you know about Anne Rice. She wrote the uh, Vampire Chronicles. And as an artist, as a scholar, as an investigative reporter, she poured her worldview into her art until she began to investigate the claims of Christ. It not only changed her heart, but it changed her work. Let's watch. I remember my parents being fiercely individualistic and I was brought up to think there was something more than what was material in this world and you had to have a spiritual focus in your life. You had to have a spiritual life, really. It wasn't enough just to acquire things or to have a good job or to have security. You had to have some sort of inner life that was burning inside you. I guess uh, I couldn't conceive then of a life without believing in God without feeling that this was God's universe. And if somebody had said, well, at 18, you'll lose your faith and you'll walk away from all this and you'll walk away from God, I don't think I would have believed them. But that's exactly what happened. I felt a, a kind of desperation. Uh, I felt that there were so many things forbidden to me. Um, as a Christian, as a Catholic, that I felt a desperate need to be free. I felt that if I was going to read about existentialists in the Beat Generation, if I was going to know the poetry of Allen Ginsberg or understand modern jazz music, if I, if I was going to read Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus and Nabokov's Lolita, you know, that I had to be free. But I also immediately felt a terrible grief. I felt a, a, a grief for the loss of faith. You know, I, I wanted so much to understand the wide world that was opening up to me in college. And the world did open up, but it opened up in a somber and darkened way. And that really never changed. I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was doing the realistic thing, the mature thing. I bought that to grow up, one has to put aside God. And I began my adventures uh, as a student of the modern world and uh, as an agnostic or an atheist. And that lasted for me for 38 years. 38 years. 
The first goal of my life after my break with faith was really to get a college education. And I wanted to be a writer, but my aspirations were very vague at that time. I didn't have a narrative yet, a story. And it was, I guess, in my 30s that I wrote um, that I wrote Interview with the Vampire, my first published novel. Of course, what all these books were doing is they were reflecting my own feelings. My own feelings as an agnostic and atheist that, that I was cut off from God, that I couldn't ever believe again as I had when I was a child. And my own increasing dissatisfaction with a world in which salvation is not a possibility. I was a person haunted by God, and my writing is just littered with accoutrements of the struggle. And yet, there's evidence there that I was called back again and again to the idea that as long as you're denying God, you will not know any rest, you will not know any peace. You can't save yourself through art, you can't save yourself through music, you can't do it through travel, you can't do it through wealth. All your attempts at saving and transcending through other means will ultimately fail. And finally, after 38 years of denying that, I found myself very ready to go back to God and to give my life over to Him. Returning to Christ changes absolutely everything. I was no longer able to work with the vampire metaphor. The vampire for me was a metaphor for the outcast and the person in a godless world. Well, I wasn't a person in a godless world, far from it. What if I just don't write them anymore? What if I write books that can be dedicated directly to God, to Jesus Christ? What if that's all I do? And at that moment, I made the decision. That is what I'm going to do. I have changed, and I have to do this. I have to write for him. I love how her art and her work life reflected the story. See, the story of the Bible is that God takes us when we're in pieces. When we don't live up to our own standards, when we are an outcast, we are broken, we have guilt and shame. And God says he restores us. He takes us from where we are and turns us into something beautiful. And that idea of being included, of being rescued, of being found, of being put back together into something beautiful begins to flow in what we do. We begin to do unto others as God has done unto us. We care for them. We love them. We say, because God has made me a beautiful thing, everything I create, I want to be beautiful as a way of showing my creator. This very piece here was created on Easter at our first Easter service five years ago. We did it right here on the stage. She created it during Easter service, made it, and gave it to us. And the craftsmanship of this picture, picture is a reminder to me that it revealed the motivation of the potter who made it. Well, this is the story of the Bible. He takes broken commodities and he makes them into beautiful things. And for those who allow him to put them back together, he says, you go and do the same. Go into a world filled with commodities of numbers, of pottery, of people, of gadgets and gimmicks. And use those things to put people's lives back together and build a city that draws people to your craftsmen. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your beautiful story. It not only grabs our heart, but because it's true, it grabs our minds. God, that you would allow us to do unto others what you've done unto us. To go into a world and do Become the artists that you are. Become the craftsmen that you are. Become the thinkers that you are. Become the, the advocates for justice that you are. The advocates for healing that you are. 
God, fill our lives with purpose, that we are released from the the lie that you want us to somehow do religious stuff for an hour a week and then go back to your regular lives. May our whole life be an act of worship, that we proclaim a story of a great, beautiful, artistic God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for being here today. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on the way out. If you're new to the church, we'd love to know a little bit more about us. We'd love to say hi, put a name to the face. The third door on your left is the hearth room. There's some folks there who'd love to meet you. Thanks again. We'll see you next week for our last week of Sluke.